All right, that was generous. I am not an Olympian, um, but I am from Utah. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to be here. It's fun to be back in New England. I'm very thin-skinned right now with the cold weather after five years in California, uh, but we're getting used to it. We're doing good. All right, so uh, knee pain, what to know and when to refer. I feel like this is a talk that you could give all the time and it still is, is helpful because it's such a ubiquitous thing that we see. Most knee pain is benign. Um, and I think this is always important to talk about in the pediatric population because I think this still ranks second um, regarding um, the most common visits to the pediatrician behind upper respiratory infection, so musculoskeletal issues and may, most of it's knee pain. Um, a lot of this adolescent knee pain can be sort of um, lumped into a few different categories. Um, the first one here is what I call pain related to growth, to be differentiated from growing pains. You know, growing pains are the, you know, the four-year-old that wakes up in the middle of the night grabbing their leg, you know, it hurts, they gotta get some Tylenol, um, versus these adolescents that have pain as they're going through their growth spurts, et cetera, et cetera. So pain related to growth. Patellofemoral syndrome falls into that category, although it doesn't have to be just related to growth. Um, apophysial overuse, which is the Osgood slaughters, which we'll talk about. Then you get the other types of knee pain, tendonitis, bursitis, et cetera. Um, there are obviously a few types of non-benign types of knee pain. Um, usually this is gonna be secondary to an injury, and this is gonna usually be an injury to some sort of ligament, meniscus, cartilage, um, sort of my little pet area of interest is the, is the kneecap, so patellar instability. Um, when we talk about patellofemoral syndrome, that's actually not necessarily a singular diagnosis. It's a little bit more, it can be a little bit more of a catch-all term. And there's several, um, there's a few different diagnoses that can kind of fit under that umbrella of patellofemoral syndrome. A couple of these are uh, lateral patellar compression or patellar maltracking, as well as the, the painful plica syndrome. Uh, and then there is just the diffuse anterior knee pain, which kind of runs by a couple different things. Some people call it infrapatellar fat pad pain. Some people call it peripatellar tendonitis. Um, those terms don't seem to be used as much anymore. So I think just, you know, a lot of this can just be called anterior knee pain slash patellofemoral syndrome. But this is sort of like diffuse knee pain where they kind of rub around their knee without pointing to any specific area. Okay, lots of theories as to um, what causes patellofemoral pain. In fact, um, the most recent consensus statement from the patellofemoral pain study group had, you know, they listed uh, probably 20 different things that can contribute to patellofemoral pain. Um, and each one of those statements was followed up with the results are inconsistent. So we're still very much in the theory mode of what exactly um, causes all this pain. Um, although we do know that there is increased contact pressure and contact forces that occur, exactly why we get those in these different situations I think is still um, the, the focus of a lot of study. In our young, developing, uh, adolescent, growing population, um, a big theory is that they get muscle imbalances due to growth and that there's also anatomic and developmental differences that occur between, uh, between sexes. Further, um, there may be a certain amount of poor proximal muscular control and a lot of physical therapy nowadays is focused not necessarily on rehabbing the knee, quote unquote, but making sure that their hips and their core muscles are strong. Um, but again, all this ends up resulting in some amount of increased contact forces on the patella and thus causing the pain. Now there are also some non-mechanical factors. Um, there have been some studies that show that patients with patellofemoral pain um, have an increased sensitivity to pain, uh, some sort of impaired pain reception, and maybe some psychological factors. And then the question always becomes which came first, 
did chronic knee pain cause this stuff to become exacerbated or was there some amount of this in the beginning that caused more um, uh, benign levels of pain to become more amplified and obviously there's probably some combination in each patient that's unique. Now regarding um, the notion of um, uh, growing and pain related to that is um, we do grow through our skeleton and then everything else has to sort of adapt to that. So bones grow and muscles adapt. And what you see in a lot of these people, um, you know, these 11 to 12 year old girls and 13, 14, 15 year old boys is this amount of relative inflexibility. Now, uh, one thing that I actually learned a few years ago is that, you know, more flexibility does not equal better performance, less pain, less injury. You know, so trying to make every kid like Gumby is not uh, a, a realistic goal. In fact, I. You know, it made me feel better because I've never been flexible. I just figured, well, that just explains why I'm such a bad athlete. Unfortunately, that it wasn't the explanation. Um, but there are these bouts of relative inflexibility secondary to growth that if we can make that better, sometimes just that little bit of extra ability to get closer to your toes um, may actually be a difference maker in some of this pain. So quadriceps, hamstrings, gastrocnemius muscles, iliotibial band have been commonly found to be tight, hip flexors as well, and people with, um, with these young athletes with patellofemoral pain. Um, there are some gender differences that we do see. I will qualify this as level five evidence. I don't know that there's been a lot of high level data, but this is kind of what you see in clinic a lot. Males tend to be just more globally tight. So their quads are tight, their hamstrings are tight, their calf muscles are tight. Females, if they're gonna be tight somewhere, they tend to be tighter in their IT band. And you know, up in New England, we've got the Irish step dancers and the ballerinas and stuff. So some of it may just be part of their, of their uh, participation in athletics. Uh, females do have a, a, a differing amount of muscular control and muscular development than males do. Um, this is a picture of the uh, quad, distal quadriceps, so where's, there's my cursor right there. Um, what, we have, what we've observed is that in females, this area of the quadricep muscle here, in the quadricep complex, I guess, this vastus medialis oblique is called the VMO. Um, can sometimes be underdeveloped in females and that their vastus lateralis, this muscle over here, can hypertrophy and get larger first. And what that causes is a little bit of a net sort of lateral um, uh, moment on the patella um, that causes it to translate a little bit this way and can increase contact forces out here. So this is something that we do see in females. The other thing that we see in females is a little bit more of um, gluteal weakness uh, uh, with under sort of relative underuse of the gluteal muscles as well as the hamstring muscles uh, as well as a certain amount of incoordination there and it causes them to relatively rely on their quadricep muscles more for a lot of their activities so females tend to run more upright they tend to cut and pivot more upright they don't tend to sort of engage their core and get in this little lower position which has several implications but part of it may be maybe knee pain when we're talking about males, again, they go through this growth spurt, they get this sort of equal muscle development, um, they get stronger, but they also get relatively inflexible. And I apologize, these are my pasty white legs on the bottom that you're looking at here. <laughs> so just call me Bill Clinton when I used to go for my morning jogs, right? Um, so you can see here, if my, with my hip flexed 90 degrees, um, my, my knee only bends up about this far, and you can even see on my other leg, how my hip and knee are flexed. And now this is my wife here, and you can see with her hip flexed 90 degrees, how much more flexibility she has. And this is, 
she can go more, but I was just having her recreate what a typical adolescent looks like. And you can see her leg here is straight on the, on the thing. So there's a, there is definitely a, a big difference here that you can see um, between, the, uh, between sexes. Okay. Now, the other thing that, that plays into all this is the notion of biomechanics and core strength. So um, we've got some developmental issues that take place. And then maybe at least in part um, is this notion of poor biomechanics. So, and we see this a little bit more in females. And again, this is something that's been the area of intense study because this has implications to knee injury. Um, but I wouldn't expect you to understand implicitly what these, what these photos are showing. These were actually taken from my old job in Los Angeles, but these are showing uh, two adolescent females very, very poorly performing two functional tasks. Both these girls underwent ACL surgery and during part of the rehabilitation process, we put them through these litany of tests to see if they were making progress. This girl ended up doing rehabbing and doing fantastic. This girl, she had persistent issues afterwards. Um, but what these, if you just sort of take this on faith, and I'm happy to explain this um, separately, um, both of these girls are highly reliant on their quadricep muscles for both of these tasks. Um, and they're not engaging their core, which is evident by the fact that this line here, which represents their pelvis, is not horizontal. It should be here, which is causing their trunk to lean over, and it's causing their knee to cave in and hit their other knee. And you can see this here, pelvis drop, trunk tilt back to the other side, and a knee that just screams, redo my ACL. So, um, so there's a big part of this. We think that, and, and this may, this is the fortunate thing about this is this is probably our area where we can actually affect the most positive change and prevent the most injuries. So this, this thing that we're talking about here, this we call dynamic knee valgus, is where, or in, the, in the patellofemoral pain world, we call it knee abduction, where this knee kind of falls into this knock knee position during certain athletics or movements. Um, this definitely has been shown to increase force at the patellofemoral joint, cause anterior knee pain. We think that it may be a precursor to ACL tears. There's actually been some studies linking prodromal patellofemoral pain to ACL tears in uh, adolescent female athletes. Okay, so that's the diffuse anterior knee pain world right there um, where people kind of come in, they just kind of rub their knee and say it hurts when I play sports or I sit in a chair for a long time, whatever. Um, now we've got um, a few sort of specific diagnoses that kind of fall under the, the patellofemoral umbrella. And the first one of these is a lateral patellar compression. And what this is, is an overload of the lateral aspect of the patella. And it's usually at least in part due to a tight um, iliotibial band and lateral structures on the knee, usually this stuff right in here. And these tight structures tend to have a lateralizing force, which then overloads the lateral patella against the lateral distal femur, what's called the trochlea. Um, you can see this more in people with VMO underdevelopment, so you might see this a little bit more in, in younger girls. Also, people have what's called femoral antiversion, when they have a little bit more of an internal twist to their femur. Uh, and then also people have sort of a knock knee or valgus alignment. Um, on exam, you're going to find these people, they have usually decreased patellar mobility, like sometimes their patella doesn't move back and forth as much as it should. And it also the patella may be tilted a little bit and you can't sort of what we call evert it on exam. When you grab the lateral aspect of the patella here and try to pick it up, it doesn't budge. Um, a lot of these people will have a positive Ober test, which is a sign of tight IT band um, a tight IT band, which is this awkward test, which I really don't like, but you know we talk about it. And then you can on X-rays, you often see it uh, on an axial image. You can see that the patella is tilted. 
Uh, treatment for this um, is usually going to involve, you know, based on their pain level, anti-inflammatory, the usual, right? Anti-inflammatory, rest, you know, sort of the boring same thing you hear every time. Like, God, really, is this all that you have to offer me? Physical therapy, um, which can focus on iliotibial band stretching, again, core strengthening. Um, surgical options exist. This is, don't worry, this is clear as mud. You don't need to really know what this is. This is a surgical photo of someone with uh, a lateral release. Um, um, if refractory cases, you know, surgical intervention may be required occasionally. The plica, um, this can be uh, a source of either primary or secondary pain in the knee. Now, everyone has a plica, okay? And I, um, I kind of refer to it as almost the appendix of the knee. We all have it. We're not really sure what purpose it serves um, other than generating a CPT code that we can bill for surgically. Um, but it's, it's, this, it's this fold of synovial tissue that's in the anteromedial knee. Um, Oftentimes, it becomes painful secondary to another injury, um, like a knee sprain or something like that. But sometimes people can have it um, exist, have it be a primary source of pain. And sometimes the people with lateral patellar compression can also have a painful plica. Um, it's usually a fairly reliable exam. Um, usually with the knee and extension, they're tender, just medial to the patella. And you can just take your fingers, kind of rub it back and forth, and you can feel the, the plica flick underneath your finger. Um, and if they say, yeah, that's my pain, then that's a pretty obvious diagnosis. Um, and again, sorry for the pasty white legs, but sometimes in a pinch, you know, your own leg works as good as any. Um, the imaging is typically negative. This is usually a clinical diagnosis. And again, it may represent something else going on. Um, I've definitely had patients who had advanced an OCD lesion, um, you know, had maybe a, a missed meniscus injury or something like that that had a painful plica. Their knee was inflamed, caused a plica to be inflamed. So I maybe was focusing more on the plica than missing something else. Okay. Treatment, again, physical therapy, rest, anti-inflammatories. I find a steroid injection to be helpful in these people. Sometimes just breaking that inflammatory cycle with a little, uh, with a little Kenalog can be curative or at least diagnostic. If the pain is gone for a little bit, then comes back, oh, these people may respond to a surgical intervention. Um, uh, if he does proceed to surgery, um, we usually will do just an arthroscopic plica resection. And again, the only thing you need to know from these photos is here's plica before and here's plica gone. Okay. Um, um, it's the easiest, simplest thing to do. I definitely drag my feet on it because the issue that occurs with this is you do this super easy surgery with a super easy rehabilitation, little to no um, restrictions afterwards, and some of them don't get better. So. I, I, even though it's super easy and would seem just like, a, why don't we just take plicas out um, prophylactically almost, um, they just, not everyone seems to get better. So um, I, don't, I tend to drag my feet on it a little bit. So you're always looking for another issue, but you can see these things as a source of pain. Okay. Now treatment in general, we talked about some of these specifics already, but um, for patellofemoral pain in general, um, they all have a fairly common treatment algorithm. Physical therapy, um, whether it's looking at flexibility and core strength or what we call neuromuscular re-education, um, basically sort of unconsciously training you to use your muscle groups differently. So um, it becomes just a, a new unconscious behavior pattern to engage your core muscles and your gluteals during athletic activity um, is, a, is one of the new sort of goals of physical therapy. Um, rest, anti-inflammatories. I put orthotics with a question mark here because you know, there's that big question, do flat feet cause knee pain? And that's, again, a very inconsistent finding. It's benign to give someone some over-the-counter orthotics. Um, some people respond fantastically, other people not at all. So I put a question mark, but I'm, I'm still, uh, 
a skeptic, let's put it that way. Okay. Now, when you're evaluating knee pain, there's, there's a, in particular, there's one thing that you don't want to miss. And then when you have someone with diffuse anterior knee pain, this is the reason why I will, will get x-rays. Um, partly because I'm a specialist, and so you sure look, you know, you got a, you're, got egg on your face if you miss this. Um, but osteochondritis desiccans can masquerade, especially the early stage OCDs can masquerade as anterior knee pain. So for me, when someone sort of just grabs their knee and says, I hurt like this, I'll get an x-ray because, you know, one time out of 100, you'll catch an OCD on x-ray and then you look like the hero. Um, but, you know, I'm just for you guys here, this right here is the pathology here, this osteochondritis desiccans, which is a whole other talk about what that is. But um, you don't want you don't want to miss that. So diffuse knee pain, I think, warrants an x-ray. Okay. And this is the guideline that I kind of follow. Um, in general, uh, again, if they can point at the pain with one finger, um, I'm typically not compelled to get an x-ray. Some people want it. That's fine. Um, uh, but if, you know, some people are a little more um, aware of x-rays nowadays and potential radiation. So if they, if they don't want it, I'm comfortable in this situation. If they can't pinpoint the pain or if they've got multiple areas of pain, I will typically at least advocate for an x-ray. And if they don't want it, you know, I'll, I'll kind of counsel them to look, if this is not getting better over the next six weeks to two months, please come, you really should be getting an x-ray in the next few months. Okay, so now that we've talked about patellofemoral pain, let's talk about um, what I've turned into a really long wordy um, uh, definition here or description, apophyseal overuse slash traction. And that's the long way to say Osgood Schlatter pain. Um, but technically it's inflammation around an apophysis and an apophysis um, deserves a definition here. Um, it's a bony protuberance with a separate ossification center. So anywhere where you have a strong muscular attachment on your bones, um, there's a separate growth plate there. These growth plates don't contribute to longitudinal height, um, but they basically are, allow a strong bony um, protuberance to form for either some strong muscle or strong ligament to attach there. Okay? Um, in the knee, the quadriceps, um, or the extensor mechanism, has a couple areas where we have these apophyseal attachments. And this apophysis is made of growth cartilage, so it does represent a weak point. Um, now, the, the names of this, we're obviously very aware of Osgood Schlatter, which is much more common, and I'll show some pictures on the next slide, but we also have this other thing called sending larsen johansson syndrome, and I, I, I love that how these things are, you know, I think people describe this at the same time, and no one wanted to give up credit, so they just kind of combined it to everyone has, you know, want to put their name in it. Um, the thing about SLJ is it can be confused with proximal patellar tendonitis, so you really have to, you know, you, it's almost a game of millimeters to determine what it is and we'll show it over here. So um, again, this is due to a pubertal growth spurt. They get, these people get, um, especially the males, they get relatively inflexible with increased strength and they just put traction on this weak area um, that can cause pain and inflammation. And here um, is a little bit of a bony protuberance secondary to um, Osgood Schlatter, which is again, right here at the tibial tubercle. We all can just, you know, take our finger and we can touch our tibial tubercle right here. Um, and then. Sending Larson Johansson SLJ is right here on the inferior pole of the patella. So they're going to be tender right in that specific spot. And again, the people with patellar, chronic patellar tendonitis are going to hurt just distal to that. So it becomes, that can be a little bit more of a careful diagnosis and workup between the two. Uh, but you're going to see Osgood Slaughter 20 times to one over um, SLJ. So on exam, again, they have activity-related pain, which is very focal. Pretty much all these kids, especially with Oscar Slaughter, are going to take one finger and they're going to point to their big swollen bump. 
okay? Um, often they're gonna have associated quadriceps and hamstring tightness. Um, if you do get x-rays, and sometimes if they come back with repeated bouts, it's not a bad idea to get it, um, just so you can have an idea and show the family. Um, you, can, you can often see fragmentation of the developing uh, tibial tubercle apophysis, okay? Treatment, again, follows the same sort of algorithm um, that we've talked about for patellofemoral pain. Um, rest, we try to avoid pain for two to four weeks. And again, this is so much of a negotiation. Um, you know, ideally they just stop, but very few people want to stop. So it becomes this, you know, bartering of like, well, at least keep yourself pain-free, although that might not work as well as rest. Um, Anti-inflammatory medications, a home stretching regimen versus physical therapy. This patellar tendon strap, no one's published on it, at least as far as I know. But, you know, in like the little blogs that people publish on the knee pain blogs, um, it seems to help. And so I've often told people to use this, especially when returning to sport. And then what I learned from Carl when I got here, a cylinder cast. People with refractory Osgood slaughter pain, if they don't get better, stick them in a cast for two weeks. It seems very old school, but it works like a charm. Their pain just melts away. I probably undertreated a few people in Los Angeles because I just thought that was, you know, just a sort of a barbaric, you know, treatment of the past that didn't need to exist anymore, but works great. So is there, um, every so often, um, you'll have some people with Oscar Schlatter and Sending Larson Johansson that actually need some sort of surgical intervention. Now, I've never personally operated on SLJ, but I have done a couple Oscar Schlatters, and I don't know if Carl's had a couple SLJs he's had to operate on or not, but um, um, usually at skeletal maturity, sometimes this the, the fragmented tubercle, it won't coalesce, and so you have these loose ossicles in the distal patellar tendon, and they'll hurt exquisitely. MRI is quite um, obvious on it, and you remove it, and they're better in... I mean, two weeks, they're, they've, they're just asking you to get back to their activities. Okay, now we're going to talk about um, the tendonitis. And again, this is an, um, an overuse injury, which you can see in adults, but you can often see in adolescents as well, just due to their high level of activity. And there's several tendons around the knee, um, but there's a few that tend to be involved routinely. Um, you've got um, the patellar tendon here, the quadricep tendon here, again, either below or above the patella, the kneecap. You've got the hamstrings, um, and they have a sort of a funny name, the pes anserine. We've got these posterior um, hamstring tendons here, the biceps femoris, semitendinosus gracilis, semimembranosus. Um, but you can see that some of these hamstring tendons, they come and they wrap around sort of the anterior medial knee right here. And this represents sort of the other, the third, again, a little less common, but the other area of um, where you can see a tendonitis or a bursitis in a... Um, in a, uh, regarding knee pain. Um, how do these people present? Again, typically focal pain with activity. Um, oftentimes there's been a recent change in their activity level. So you get a runner, like someone who just started cross country running and they just up their activity level dramatically, can get pain like this, can get tendonitis. Um, they're typically gonna hurt um, over the inflamed tendon. So it may be point tender or it may track along the tendon itself. Oftentimes they'll have pain with passive stretch or active resistance. So if they have patellar tendonitis or quadricep tendonitis, you have them do a knee extension against your own hand and that will hurt them. And if they have like hamstring tendonitis, you have them do knee flexion against you and that sort of active resisted um, test can uh, provoke or recreate their pain. Um, again, you can forego imaging if the exam is convincing in these situations. Treatment, again, same sort of similar algorithm that we've had for everything else. Rest, anti-inflammatories, potentially a patellar tendon strap for patellar tendonitis specifically. 
And then um, this probably, I put home stretches versus PT. Usually what these people are presenting, they often benefit a little bit more from some focused physical therapy um, as opposed to sort of a home stretching exercise, a regimen which we know really doesn't get done anyway. Okay, and now bursitis. Um, this is similar to tendonitis and can sometimes coexist, but it is important to distinguish between the two. So a bursa is a fluid-filled sac over any sort of like bony or uh, bony prominence or ligamentous prominence or whatever, uh, and they allow smooth motion um, over two areas that aren't a joint. So you can see here, there's all these different bursa around the knee. Um, right here, there's one right in front of our patella that allows the skin over our patella to glide back and forth easily without getting caught up. Um, the pes anserine bursa, the infrapatellar bursa, all these different bursa, um, they can be inflamed um, oh, in the distal IT band, which sits right here. This is a pretty common one. This IT band bursitis is often caused, called runner's knee, right? It can be due to overuse, um, um, and sometimes, like in the case of prepatellar bursitis, due to direct trauma. Again, these people have focal pain with activity, so they can usually take a finger and they can point to where their pain is. Um, the distal IT band bursitis is probably the most common bursitis pain that you're going to see around the knee. Um, and that, um, but it's good to know how to examine that because it can be confused sometimes with, with meniscus pain. The, the, the distal IT band bursa is literally millimeters above the joint line. And so if you're, you have to be very cognizant of where you're pressing on these people so you don't confuse it with like meniscal pathology, like a discoid meniscus or a lateral meniscus tear. But they will hurt typically over the inflamed bursa. Sometimes there will be some focal swelling. X-rays are typically going to be negative in this situation. Treatment again follows a similar algorithm. Anti-inflammatories, rest, um, home stretches versus physical therapy. But steroid injections can be quite helpful in this situation. If you can get um, the steroid into that bursa sac, it can really instantly take away their pain. And this is where I think ultrasound can be um, really useful because you can actually image the bursa, especially if it's swollen a little bit, and you can guide the needle right into it. You can do it blind, and, and that works okay, but I think ultrasound takes it to the next level of, of um, diagnostic and treatment accuracy. And we have an AJ doing ultrasound now in our clinic, which is fantastic. So um, another thing that we see a lot, it's rarely symptomatic, but is worth noting, is the bipartite patella. Um, and you can see right here what could be confused as a patella fracture or, or something going on with the patella right here. Um, what this represents is sort of an, uh, a lack of fusion of different ossification centers of the patella. Most of it is completely asymptomatic and often shows up incidentally on x-rays. So you get someone with knee pain and you get an x-ray and this shows up and it's like, oh, is that causing the pain or not? Um, it's usually in the superior and lateral aspect of the knee right here. Um, they do um, present similar to other types of knee pain mainly pain with activity, and again, it's readily seen on x-ray. Um, however, the difference between a symptomatic and an asymptomatic bipartite patella is unfortunately you know, easy. They have to hurt right over the spot. So if they don't hurt over that area, it's likely not the problem. Um, so, you know, the thumb test is usually pretty easy. You put your thumb on it and push and see if it causes them pain. And if it does, then that might be the situation. Um, and if you need any sort of extra diagnostic accuracy or, or uh, um, uh, confidence, you can get an MRI and usually the T2 images will show some sort of signal enhancement along that area. Um, uh, a, a good amount of these will respond to just a short course of rest, anti-inflammatories, physical therapy. I've actually had 
um, uh, at least a certain amount of diagnostic success with a steroid injection right into the area. What I found if people don't respond to this stuff and we inject it, it provides temporary relief of pain that often recurs, but then I know that's exactly what's causing the pain and then they benefit from a surgical excision. Um, and you can debate excision versus fix with screw. Um, I've tended to excise these, but I know some people will actually try to fix it back together. Okay. Now the question is, is when to refer? And in this day and age, I think a lot of it can just say based on your practice patterns and, and uh, enjoyment to actually deal with musculoskeletal problems I and mean, we've got specialists everywhere and so you know a lot of people get knee pain in and say go see the orthopedist which is totally fine um, but if, if part of your practice involves initial care of musculoskeletal conditions um, then any failure of conservative measures um, would be a, a very appropriate time to refer so if someone fails a period of rest physical therapy anti-inflammatory medications if there's a change in the intensity of type of pain um, if there's radiographic abnormalities that you're unsure of, uh, then those would all um, be very appropriate for, uh, uh, for uh, specialist referral. And this here is a case of chronic proximal patellar tendonitis, and the, the, patella, the tendon here is swollen and inflamed right at its inferior border of the patella. Um, history of swelling, history of injury, again, um, unless this is an area that you like to deal with, you know, obviously we're more than happy to see all of those patients. And especially even more when we've got Dave and Imran to fill most of them before they get to me for surgical consultation, right? Ha, ha, ha. Um, okay. Um, so it's worth a discussion quickly about different knee injuries. So we're at least aware of things that could happen if someone comes into you with a painful swollen knee. So we've got ligaments about the knee. Um, obviously, the ACL is the big, you know, this, this makes my mortgage payments pays for my kids' preschool. Um, meniscus injuries are these sort of like shock-absorbing pieces of cartilage in the knee. We have the articular smooth gliding cartilage of the knee. Um, fractures, contusions, sprains, all these different things um, uh, which fall in sort of the acute injury category. Um, mechanisms of injury differ between things. So if, if someone comes in and says they twisted their knee funny, um, you know, like, oh, my body went one way and my foot went the other, something like that. You have to be thinking of some sort of ligamentous injury or meniscus injury or something like that. So ACL tear, patella dislocation, MCL sprain, meniscus tear, etc. Usually with direct contact, um, like a, a direct fall on something, that's going to be more to cause a contusion or a fracture. And then some certain injuries, like, you know, if you get hit on the side during a football game, that can cause certain uh, ligament injuries like MCL, lateral collateral ligament injuries, posterior cruciate ligament injuries. Um, but for the most part, a lot of our common surgical issues are twisting injuries of the knee. Um, and then the direct blows often are more likely to cause fractures, contusions, stuff like that. Um, presentation for a lot of these injuries, obviously pain, limited weight bearing, stiffness and swelling. Um, very, very typical. I think that we're all fairly aware, aware of that. Um, and obviously the history of what led to it gives us an idea of what we think we might be um, looking at. Um, the examination of these people is obviously going to be difficult, um, secondary to pain and guarding. I know that if I just tore my ACL, I'm not sure that I would love someone, you know, trying to go, oh, I can't tell if this Lachman is positive or not, let me pull harder, right? Um, so it, it's, it's difficult. I think sometimes, especially in the pediatrician's office, the things that you want to to evaluate for is can they move their foot up and down right can they feel you touching them is there an obvious like 45 degree bend at the knee or not um, if they have an area of focal pain we can assess that 
you know, and you can try to assess their range of motion, tenderness, different ligaments, if, if they're willing to comply with that. Um, but I think at the very least, if you're concerned um, and you want to sort of get the workup started, you know, start with an x-ray. And a simple x-ray can tell you so much about what you can and can't do with these people right away. Um, in some situations, the x-ray may be all you need, tibial spine fracture right here, or they may have a, you know, another type of fracture, you know, put those people on a pair of crutches um, and, and get them in, you know, brace them. If, if the x-rays are negative, you know, they may not need to be you know, rigidly immobilized and put on crutches per se. Um, you can refer them off to us, we can get the MRI. Um, so the x-ray is just a nice way to sort of determine what level of acuity. A fracture obviously needs to be seen quicker um, than you know, the swollen traumatic knee per se if the x-rays are negative. Okay, um, In the setting of negative x-rays or the next level of um, uh, diagnostic workup, the MRI has obviously become our preferred advanced imaging study and typically that's going to dictate our treatment plan for these injuries and this is just you know the, the ACL tear that we see I don't know hundreds of each year okay so with that little synopsis of injuries the take-home points from this talk would be most anterior knee pain is benign which I think we've all experienced time and time again most of it responds to some form of exercise physical therapy despite the varying causes that can lead to the pain um, I do think that for most patellofemoral type pain, diffuse type pain, x-rays are a good idea. Um, you just don't want to miss the OCD lesion because the treatment is so drastically different. Um, focal pain that can be um, pointed out with one finger I think is something that doesn't routinely need an x-ray. So that's going to be Osgood slaughter, your tendonitis, your bursitis type pain. Causes for concern, swelling, twisting injuries any failure of initial conservative management uh, and obviously when to refer you know honestly we're, we're, we're all in this together so anytime based on your practice preferences but any failure of initial conservative measures then obviously any injury so thank you